Welcome to another episode of Sermon Extras. I'm Todd Bolander, and here with me is Jerry Caesar, pastor at Gulf Coast Community Church in St. Petersburg, Florida. How are you doing, Jerry? I am doing well today, Todd. How are you? I'm doing well. We're in the middle of July, two-thirds of the way through July, and we're going to talk back through a couple of your messages, and then I gave a message this past Sunday that for some reason you want to... Absolutely. ...dig away at, or I'm not sure, throw, uh, throw salt ha- in my wounds. No, I, I want to uh, uh, have you expand on a few thoughts, uh, at least, and uh, some excellent stuff there, so. <laughs> Okay, so first we'll start off by going back to part 15 of your series, Disciple 1.0, and look at the sermon out of Matthew chapter 8 and then into the beginning of chapter 9, Right. Uh, come out of the tombs and walk. And uh, that covers a couple of sequences, in particular Jesus and the disciples have just come across the Sea of Galilee, right? Right. Lake Gennesaret, I believe. Correct. Alternatively called, depending on which book you're reading. Right. And and they've entered uh, a region of largely held Gentile, non-Israelite, non-Judean, non-Jewish. Right. Population there. Population. And Jesus is going to minister and preach in that area as well. Right. And the, and the Gadar, Gadarenes is plural, but Gadarene was once the ancient capital of the Decapolis, which is that area that was predominantly held by Gentiles. So there's a, there's a bit of a symbolic significance of this location as well. So explain that to me then. What is the symbolic significance? I, I think that what this... Uh, sea missions in the Bible are often representative and symbolic of something. This There are a lot of things in this account that are reflective of Jonah's story. Um, uh, Jonah sleeping in the bottom of the boat, Jesus sleeping. Uh, a contrast, of course, Jonah was uh, running from the Lord in disobedience, and the disciples were in the boat in obedience, and yet they're both experiencing a storm. Uh, but then I think forward to Paul's sea mission in Acts chapter 27, which I believe is um, given as the uh, proper ending to the book of Acts. Many times people say there's no ending to the book of Acts. Actually, I think there was quite an ending. And, 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 and this sea voyage of Paul is a, a picture of the church's voyage to the ends of the earth that continues forward. Um, and, and of course, is fraught with difficulty along the way, just as his was. Um, so, so here... You have a picture, I think, in this sea voyage because Jesus says, get in the boat and go. And the whole crux from the week before we talked about is that they were to obey Jesus' order, get in the boat and go. And when they do, they find themselves in a Gentile territory. So I think it's a picture of the future mission of the church, not just to that town, but to the whole region of the Gentiles, maybe represented by the symbolism of that town. Well, when Jesus arrives at this location... He has an interesting reception. Yes, that would be uh, the understatement of the year. Yes. Um, two, is it two in this? Yes, two. Yes, two demoniacs. Uh, two two demon possessed men met him. And 
how, how does he interact with them? Well, it's, it's interesting because he, uh, from what we see here in Luke, um, he, he shows up and they cry out. They come to him crying out, what do you have to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And so there's a herd of pigs. So far, Jesus has said nothing. The demons begged him, if, if uh, you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And the only thing he says is go. So, so similar to what he said to the centurion, go. Not too dissimilar to what he said to the lepers. I mean, there was, I think, two words. Um, and then he, and he get, tells him to go see the priest, but again, go. Um, to get in the boat, you know, there's maybe a little more than that. But all of this to say, he says one word in this account, which seems to be a word that's uh, thematic through the chapters 8 and into 9. And, and uh, that one word is, in effect, telling them that it would be unto them, just as they had asked, to go get in the pigs. And then, of course, the, the, the pigs do what is very unnatural for pigs. They try to take a swim. And that doesn't work out so well for them. Uh, you emphasize and have been in the past several mes messages prior to this about this Jesus speaking in one word mm -hmm. and him exercising authority in, in a word. So what's the significance that we should be taking away from this repeated idea of Jesus speaking a single word? Right. That's, uh, so, so I had somebody come up to me after that particular message that we're discussing um, and, and asked me the question, uh, they're newer and, you know, weren't familiar with, you know, uh, my teaching per se, and, and even scripture per se, uh, though they obviously have some sort of Christian background, but they, their question was, I kept waiting the whole time for you to tell us what one word it is we needed to obey from Jesus, because I wanted to know that word so I could do it. And it would, it would get my life set, set in order. And I suddenly realized something that I never would have dreamed that I needed to, to make clear. So, uh, but yet I did need to make it clear, um, is that I'm not talking about any magical formula or incantation or one specific instruction that we all need to, to obey. I think that the broader point is that any one word from Jesus, and you can take the whole Sermon on the Mount as an example, each one of those is so important that when he comes to us and he says, go, and that go for us means to go do this thing that I have said, which is do not return evil for evil, which is be generous, which is forgive, which is, you know, uh, blessed is the peacemaker, the shalom maker. And we could go on and on and on. There, there are either explicit or implicit instructions throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And certainly when we get to the end, the whole latter portion is telling us how important it is that we do the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount. And then, of course, we arrive at chapters 8 and 9, which keep emphasizing the importance of just one word from Jesus is enough to obey that word, do what he says, keeps driving it home. The point is, is if we want our lives transformed, we do what Jesus says. And, it, and of course, not because doing so will earn us salvation, but because doing so reflects that we've been transformed and changed by Christ himself. It, is, it comes out of Christ's word to us, not in order to achieve this transformation. And if we pick up from last week, not only as a, a, an evidence, but also a practice that then returns us to ourselves 
more full. So the obedience, the, the practice of obeying whatever the word is that Jesus has spoken to us through the scripture or, you know, put plainly in front of our face for that day, opportunities, things that, you know, you need to do this at this point. Um, it takes us out of ourselves to return us to ourselves. Amen. And so there's transformation yeah. there. Right. Right. Yeah. The, the, the command of Christ will always pull us out of our natural selves and change us and, 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 and actually call us to do something that is contrary to our, only our natural selves. But then in doing so, that becomes part of our new nature. We become trained in that. Amen. You spend a moment during this session, that during this sermon, describing that many moderns, when they read this passage about two men who are demon-possessed, who are clearly suffering, that many moderns will read that section and think about mental illness or... You know, why is Jesus, why are people standing by and letting them mentally ill? Why is Jesus speaking to them in these terms? And that seemed true to to my experience with people who were not Christian. In other words, so a lot of modernity will look at this and, and say, this text is an example, uh, you know, of unsophisticated thinking about mental illness, and so it would just be ascribed to demonic activity. Correct. And and you made the point that demonic possession or exorcisms would not have been unusual in the day, Jesus, you know, that that culture, that's not as unusual a thought process. And I, and I agree that that's definitely the way that a lot of folks who— are outside of evangelical Protestantism or or are on the more—I'll use the term liberal, but I don't mean in a social sense. I mean right. in their approach to the Bible, that they're not yeah. as conservative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But for the more conservative evangelical Protestant, my experience is that people, instead of thinking of it in those terms when they read this passage, they think about it as— an example of what to do when they see something like this, or they ask questions about why don't we see things like this if this story is true. And so it can cause hangups even for the more conservative, take the Bible a little more uh, face value when it says these people were possessed by evil spirits. They say, okay, well, that's what it is. Well, then why don't I see that? Why right. doesn't that still happen? And if it does still happen, is this what I'm supposed to do? I'm just supposed to, like Jesus, tell him to go away or run into pigs or whatever? Right, right. I think I think both of those responses, one from the uh, person who's not a believer, or at least not an evangelical believer, maybe they're more of a liberal theological bent, uh, or the response from the, the, the more conservative or evangelical believer are two vantage points, a response coming from two different vantage points but rooted in the same ideology. Um, so, for instance, the the person who says that's just uh, an, an example of unsophisticated thinking that is evident here in the Bible, we know better than that now, of course, is the idea. But because anytime we're talking about different worldviews, the presumption for 
anyone is that our worldview is better than your the other worldview. And so we know better than that now is their way of saying we were a lot smarter and we're a better culture than they were. Okay. Um, but yet, we, of course, today that, that gets into the arrogance of a lot of things that go on in our world where we, we assume our culture is better than other cultures when they may well prefer their own. Um, because the worldview is how we think and it invades our whole culture. Um, and of course, the gospel is written to people in a worldview and, and according to language and forms that they can understand. Um, so it wasn't unsophisticated. It was just how they understood the world and, and how things were communicated. And the flip side of that, uh, for oftentimes for the believer, they look at it and, 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 and they will say, hey, see, when somebody's got mental illness, they're demon-possessed. Look, this story proves that. Well, of course, the story doesn't state that. It describes somebody who is demon-possessed and describes their symptoms. We can reverse engineer that all we want, but that's not the point of the story. And, and, and then, of course, they want to then turn that into a prescriptive text for uh, how, what we're supposed to do, as you point out, for that person who is so-called demon-possessed in, in our modern circumstance. Um, but again, that all presumes uh, that something has changed, that what we now view as mental illness must have been the same thing, therefore demons are involved. And we don't necessarily know what that thing was versus this thing. We, all we've got is the story that's put in front of us. And when, in that story, since the, the whole issue of demon possession isn't what would have stood out to that audience, what would have stood out to that audience is Jesus says one word, go, and he has control. There are plenty of Jewish exorcists, but they would never have been able with one word to cause demons, much less a whole army of demons, to leave uh, a person. And, and so the, the point, the driving point of the story is not a prescription for how we are to treat people. It is that Jesus Christ has not only authority, but so much authority that one word from Jesus can transform and change that circumstance. And, and if we want to call it mental illness, if we want to call it whatever it is that he's facing, one word from Jesus will transform and change. Um, and of course, it's, it's the word of Christ that, that brings salvation in its full and total sense. I feel like that handled two-thirds of what I was asking. Okay. Give me so the other the, third. The other third is the why then... If I assume that these are malicious spirits, mm -hmm. and everyone, the author here, Matthew, takes for granted that it is, Jesus takes for granted that it is, mm -hmm. people standing around think that that's the case. If it is, in fact, the case, mm -hmm. do we see demon possession in our time? And Does something like this still happen? And if it does... Why why don't I see it? Like why doesn't it happen? Because he just walks into it. He he just right. walks into a strange land, and all of a sudden, oh yeah, demon demon possessed right. people right. come out of the woodwork. Like yeah, yeah, that's just normal, right? Part, part so so I've got two answers to that. Uh, one is to the person who says, why don't we see this today? I, my first answer is you should get out more, uh, because in my <laughs> experience, uh, I, I see it quite a bit, uh, but. Uh, I think part of why we don't see it is, well, aside from that we don't get out more, that we, we, we live in a very um, closed-off culture where we don't 
in, engage certain sectors of society. Uh, we, we've isolated them off into to hospitals and 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 poor areas of town, and we don't we don't engage that now. Uh, I think that that to some degree insulates us. I think the word I'm looking for there is insulate. So we live insulated lives. On the other hand, uh, I think we do see it, but when we see it, we interpret it through our modern viewpoint rather I than see. through that viewpoint. Therefore, we in our mind we haven't seen it, but that's because what we think we're seeing we've already interpreted according to. The, and, and that's what I was driving at earlier Got when it. I said we both right. approach it right. from the same angle. I see. Yeah. Okay, so then I retract it. You did answer all three. Well, I, I sort of did. I, I, I failed to come back and close that loop, so thank you for raising that again. There was one other thing that you said dealing with both the passage about the demon-possessed person and then, again, the passage following that about the paralytic, mm-hmm. that if we're going to, as followers of Jesus, if we're going to do the works he does, if we're going to follow him, uh, then like him, yes, we need pure hearts, but like him, we're going to get have to get our hands dirty. And you talked about Jesus leading people into unclean places. Um, and in my mind, based on, again, my, my growing up where I did the, the traditions of American Christianity I grew up in, you know, alarm bells started going off and and I started thinking well wait what is he saying is he saying that I need to regularly expose myself to things that might be risks to me in other words should I go to should I regularly go to bars in order to talk to people about Jesus because that's where hurting people are um, things of that nature right. questions I've heard people, argue the counter for right um, right should it should an alcoholic hang out in the bar to minister to other alcoholics should a person go hang out at the strip club to reach out to those that are you know there uh and no that's not what i'm referencing uh at all however because because there is a place for we are called out of the world uh but we aren't called entirely out of the world and so jesus what jesus was willing to touch the leper the leper is this hurting person who is afflicted by darkness. Um, he's willing to go to the Gentile's house. Um, now, I don't know that he would have been uh, willing to respond to, say, uh, Herod the same way, who, you know, enjoying Herod at one of his lascivious parties with dancing girls uh, where John the Baptist's head might be cut off. Um, so, so. Okay, good. That's probably a better probably a better example of is it okay for me as a believer to join myself in business institutions or academic institutions or associations of various type where it's obvious that they have an anti-god anti-jesus bent inclination under the under the presumption of myself that i'm going to go in there and i'm going to i'm going to change that i'm going to start winning people out of that even though I know full well that that's what those and oh by the way it advantages me in my business when I do it. Yeah, one one has to question the motives. Of course, is is the oh by the way it advantages me in my business. I I think anytime there's a a profit motive in there, there's our our motives are suspect um, at best. 
uh, and so we should be because I've be heard people. Talk, right. I, I, so I'll bring an example. I'll probably get in trouble for this. Someone will get mad about it. But like um, Mensa. So Mensa is this organization, international organization for people who score above a certain number on their IQ and so forth. So on. I've never been troubled by these things. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a member. Um, uh, and, but I've known people who were involved and, and believers, Christians who joined or were interested or treated it like a badge of honor. Uh, and, and one of their stated premises is that, Basically, we're trying to solve the world's issues by collectively gathering the brightest people together into an organization to, to tackle the problems. But the one answer you can't ever use is religion. In other words, you are not allowed to talk about um, beliefs, Jesus in particular, things like that. So I could imagine a Christian thinking it was okay to join this group and to participate I guess that's an example that comes to mind. Is it okay? Can it, could a Christian um, in, good, in good conscience before the Lord go into this unclean place to try to rescue people when their stated mission is to do anything but what you're trying to do? Right. I, I mean, from what I know, and all I know is what you've just described, I'd lean towards saying, no, that would not be okay. Uh, however, I think, so let me, let me cast it a little differently. I think there are times when believers are called to go into institutions of higher learning uh, so that they can get the credentials uh, in order that, uh, and their institutions oftentimes getting degrees that might not be uh, particularly pro-Christian per se, philosophy or something of that nature, but by going in there and getting the credentials, they're then allowed uh, to speak into those environments in a way that, that you know, of course they'll... Uh, not be given the top seats of anything, but they'll have an opportunity to speak to, to write in, and to, to maybe make a difference in that community. So I think there's a place to do that, but where it might cost us, not so much where it might profit us, um, we might find those types of things um, that would be, be beneficial. And another, and another example of where I've seen um, this, un, you know, willing to get your hands dirty, uh, you might find yourself as a believer, as a shalom maker, mediating between two parties that are about to go to court, but you're trying to help them get to reconciliation. Uh, of course, you, you'll find yourself in the middle of meetings like that, since they're about to go to court, that there's a lot of hostility going on and a lot being slung back and forth across the room. Or you might find yourself counseling a married couple and having to walk through the, the, the I would say, spiritually speaking, literally horrors of what they've done in their marriage to each other and the hurts they've inflicted upon each other. And, and, and you just wonder how dirty a life can get sometimes. And yet you're there to help them find the cleansing power of Jesus. And you do. And it's amazing what God does in those situations. But if you're all worried about staying, keeping your hands clean, you'll, you'll never find yourself able to minister to people in those situations. Give me faith to trust that you are kind. Molding me to be like Christ Give me ears to hear and eyes to see You are all that I could ever need Keep me always close to you 
Let's move on to the next message in the series, and you had quite an alliterative title, Six Sinners, <laughs> Synagogue Rulers, and Sisters. I, I can't even say that. Right. <laughs> That's From the text is uh, Matthew 9, verse 9 through 26, and you have the call of Matthew and the Pharisaic response, the religious elite who respond to how Jesus is spending time with people who are on the outs as far as the religious elite right. are concerned. And in that passage, you made a comment about how many people follow a salvation by segregation. That's what they seem to be doing in in their overall approach to sin was if we who are the in-group isolate you Mm. or don't let you in, that should tell you that you should change. You should stop whatever it is you're doing that causes us to reject you. Where do you see people who name the name of Jesus doing something like this? Because that was, that was a challenge to me to think through, where do I practice this? How does it show up? And I might not even be aware that I'm doing something similar. Good. And, and let me start by saying, first off, that there is a place for excluding people. As we know from later in Matthew, Matthew 18, but that only comes after long appeals, you know, go to a brother, uh, go with two or three, bring them before the church. Um, so, so all of that is only after appeals to be included properly and in willingness and, and the pursuit of forgiveness and reconciliation being the, the, the central thing. Uh, whereas the Pharisees, of course, were excluding anybody based on anything they defined as unclean. And, and um, of course, we... <laughs> We've got the, the, the general caricatures of that, that are given to us by certain sects, uh, sects, that's S-E-C-T-S, um, wherein um, uh, people will be, uh, you, you can't hang out with people who might even have beards or ladies who wear makeup or uh, don't wear dresses or, you know, that pant wearing group, you know. But, but I think we have much more subtle ones that find their ways into most, uh, should I say, mainstream uh, evangelical churches. Um, in some of the more conservative churches, uh, there's a sense of shunning uh, somebody who's, uh, uh, in some contexts, uh, where, where the wife is not a stay-at-home mom. Uh, in other contexts where uh, it, it might be that... Uh, uh, the household, just, you know, single mom or a single dad, the households not look like our own households. Um, I, I, I find it amazing that so many churches uh, advertise themselves as a, quote, family church. Um, well, and part of why we do that, of course, is studies show us that that's a, that's a good way to grow your church. Uh, unfortunately, it excludes people, or at least certainly makes them feel excluded, even if that's not the intention. Uh, because they feel like, well, we don't have a family that measures up, so we should probably find better language that would communicate what we're trying to say that would not uh, cause them to feel excluded uh, in that situation. Um, and of course, they, they, we, we tend to very quickly exclude people, people whose behaviors 
um, aren't in circumspect with what we think are the right behaviors. We don't follow that Matthew 18 of pursuing them. And uh, there's certainly, a, I would say in Matthew 18, a certain patience that's uh, required to walk through those steps before you get to a point of exclusion. So there's uh, a, a sense of, of even long-suffering for those that are rebellious um, within the church, uh, apparently. I have certainly seen the first couple you mentioned um, about non-homeschooling, non-stay at Yes, that's a good one, non-homeschooling, right, yes. Um, this, this thing that I've decided is right for my family, because I've decided that it's right for my family, that means somehow it should be right for everybody's family. And so if I don't, if someone isn't like that, I'm not really going to hang out with them, that right. sort of thing. I've seen that in a couple of different forms, in, including dietary things. Oh, you, oh will, yeah. you will eat that? Well, then I won't. But surprisingly, surprisingly, that one actually happens. Yeah, um, that one's the most surprising, of course, given all the biblical documentation on why it should not be happening. Yeah. Explicit biblical documentation. Right. Later on in the passage, uh, in verse 14, it reads, chapter 9, verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him, him being Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And you gave an explanation of wineskins, one that was unfamiliar to me. Will you unpack that just briefly? Right. So, well, first off, wineskins... when they're used, you put new wine in them and they're used, they, they get dry and brittle uh, with age. But of course, at that point, the wine has stopped expanding the skin, so not a problem. It'll hold the wine just fine. Um, you pour new wine into that, the new wine's wanting to ferment, and there's this expansion taking place. It will burst the wine skin. That doesn't really work with glass bottles, wine bottles, of course, because it, it's not going to happen. Unless you're doing it very wrong. Yeah, there's going to be something going on. Seriously wrong, right? Uh, so, um, it's not something we're overly familiar with in the context of Matthew and particularly with the stories that surround this parable, if you will, uh, Jesus is eating with sinners. He's breaking all the boundary rules. Uh, then he goes to a synagogue ruler's house, which would be kind of a reverse boundary that maybe some of his disciples would have put on him at the end of this chain. I mean, it, it, this story is almost a mimic of the centurion story, except now it's a Jewish ruler of the synagogue as opposed to a Gentile ruler of an army. They're, they're about as opposite as you could get. And, 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 and so you, you have that story set up, but it's again a boundary that may start to have formed in the minds of his new community. Oh, they're not allowed in, these synagogue rulers, because throughout this section, of course, it's the Pharisees, it's the rulers of the Jews that seem to be the enemies of Jesus. And yet Jesus very willingly goes to his house and responds to his faith as well. Uh, And then you've got a woman who, I mean, not only is she a woman, which would be enough, 
in that world to exclude her from uh, this this uh, uh, ministry. But she's a bleeding woman. She's unclean. She's a boundary, and she touches Jesus. And he stops and pays her attention and points out that she touched him. And, and then you've got a dead girl, the epitome of unclean. Doesn't You, you don't get more unclean than dead. And that, that, that's, that, that's, that, that's the limit. And yet Jesus takes her by the hand and lifts her up. And, and so you have all these boundaries that are being broken. And so I see that in light of the story that's being told about wineskins, which would have been a, a certainly a common enough picture for their day and age. They probably use that metaphor for a lot of things. Uh, but I would suspect here and in this context, my, my thinking is that Matthew's pointing out uh, that these boundaries are being broken. Um, that that the, the, the new wine of forgiveness, the new wine, which is a theme throughout this grace of Christ, and you see it highlighted in the paralytic and in Levi's story, uh, but even emphasized with the woman who touches Jesus' cloak. Uh, and I think all the way back to the leper, be clean. You know, it, 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 there's that, that, that element of forgiveness that's implicit in that. Um, so, so there's this forgiveness that's being received and given. And that's the thing that breaks the boundaries. That's the things that, that changes everything um, compared to even the old covenant, where certainly the old covenant, this uncleanness was ruling the day. And and lepers weren't allowed into the community, and women who were bleeding weren't allowed in. But now all of a sudden, all this has changed. And what is the thing that has changed it? It's the forgiveness of sins being present in Jesus in a full sense. Then why is he using the patch on the cloth and the wine in the wineskin as a response about fasting and pray? Um, yeah, fasting. Yeah, good question. Because one, that's the question that was brought to him. So if that's the question that was brought to him, he's he's taking something that they see, which is that they're stuck in their old rituals, and for them, fasting is is their ritualistic way of getting God to to do something. And and Jesus is saying, in effect, I've already done something. In in in, in God's done something. It's called forgiveness of sins. The bridegroom is here. And you need to get your attention off these old forms and onto this new thing that God is doing and celebrate what God is doing and allow these, these boundaries to be no longer uh, boundaries in your life. And again, with the patch, there's a sense of, of a tearing away from the limits of what that hole was allowing. So then explain the first part to me, because I can see how the analogies work from transit... Something old doesn't fit into something new. That that seems to add up with with everything you're saying. I'm or something having... new doesn't fit into right, something right, old. Right, yeah, right, right, right. They don't go together. Right. And if you try to make them go together, it's just going to be a mess. So right. stop trying to make old and new go together. Right. I get all that. What I'm not getting is how the bridegroom, the first part of Jesus' response includes a... The guests of the bridegroom mourning, which sounds more like an explanation of fasting to me. Doesn't sound like talking about who gets accepted, you know, I've offered forgiveness of sins. It sounds like a more straightforward, like he's going to answer their question about fasting. How is what does that first part mean then if the second part means stop thinking in 
old covenant terms, then what does that first part mean? I'm I'm having a hard time putting sure. the various pieces of his response together in a coherent string. Right, right. I'm um, uh, trying to locate in in Isaiah the particular area, but but one, you've got Isaiah 58 where fasting is brought up. And fasting for the Jews, even back as far as Isaiah, but certainly under the Pharisees, had become uh, a way to get God to, uh, as it were, respond to them despite their sin. It was, it was their way of saying, God, we need your help and you need to overlook our sin, when in reality, they were actually sinning in the process of their fasting because they were supposed to be helping the, bring justice to the hungry by you know, sharing their food with the needy. And that was the fast that God called for. And we see that in Isaiah 58. And, and, the, and the Pharisees are still doing practicing, as it were, that kind of fasting. And then you see the bridegroom brought up shortly after that in Isaiah where he speaks to the one that was unwanted, now being wanted and desired. You, so, so there's a... a, a a connection between the bridegroom coming and accepting those that were formerly cast out. And so the bridegroom language fits in with the forgiveness language. The bridegroom language fits in with the fasting language, but it points us toward the, the, the new wine of forgiveness, if you will. And so there's a, it's, it's heavily influenced, I think, by Isaiah, uh, and in particular Isaiah 58, and I believe it's uh, 60... 60 uh, I believe it's chapter 60. It could be okay. a little further in to the 60s. I'll have to take 60s. a look at both of those. That'll be helpful if I can see ties. Because what I'm, what I'm dealing with is I listen to that. I think every one of the points you're making is true that, um, that, and Jesus will make. I'm just having a hard time with his response here being those things. And in particular, because he says, the days are coming when the bridegroom will go away, and then the guests will fast, right. as though he's saying, yeah, then all those rituals will be appropriate. Right. Well, he's certainly saying fasting will be appropriate, uh, whether the rituals as they did them, you know, is another story. But but certainly fasting would be appropriate at, at that day. So he's pointing to another day. But the thing that's present and real in him uh, is that 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 life has come. Forgiveness has come. He is the reality of forgiveness. And therefore, he is the source of all life. And so the morning comes to an ending that the fasting represented, just like the morning with the young girl at the end of the story comes um, uh, to an ending because life has come in her. Now, of course, we live in a day now where life doesn't come. I left the hospital just before I came here. Um, and, and, you know, uh, in all probability, we're going to be doing a funeral um, because it, it doesn't look like she's coming out of this. And of course, she's uh, much older and, and, and we expect these things, but it is the, the, the truth that we don't live in a day where life is that full. We, we live in a day where he's absent and we await to see him again. And, and so, yeah, we mourn. We do mourn and we will mourn. Right. Let me ask you then these things, and you can tell me, because these are interpretations that I've heard before, uh -huh. and you can, let's try to quick fire these. Why are these wrong? Yeah, well, we'll see if I know. <laughs> okay. Uh, or maybe you'll show me why they're right, and I was wrong. <laughs> new wine is the Holy Spirit. Um, there's nothing in the context that would indicate that. There's nothing going on here. Uh, could that metaphor be used to speak of the Holy Spirit somewhere? Sure. Could be, uh, but certainly not here. There's nothing to indicate that that's what Jesus is talking about uh, here in this context. 
Jesus is explaining that his disciples, unlike John and the Pharisees who have been fasting a long time, his disciples have only been religious people now for a short time, and to ask them to behave like that would be silly. It would ruin them. Um, well, that's interesting. Um, I'm, I, I, I would suspect that the disciples of John were not much longer disciples of his than they were uh, his, Jesus' disciples of his, just because they were both very contemporary. Um, the Pharisees, of course, had been around multi-generation, um, so that would be different. But again, I would say there's just nothing in the context. Not only is there nothing to support that in the context, I would argue that the context would argue would press against that. Um, Jesus says very specifically that it's because of his presence, not because of their newness. Okay, good. Thank you. I especially like that last part for me, for my own thinking. I've got a couple others that aren't coming to mind that I've heard, but those are the two main ones I've heard growing up, is that new wine, is, somehow it's related to the Holy Spirit. Right. I've heard that many times. Right. A more practical reading was, well, he's just saying, look, this is all new to them, so if I try to put stuff into them like it's old, you know, they, they, they that's not going to work. I can't put long-standing habits into people who've never tried it before. That's not how I treat people. And they're supposed to be celebrating because I'm here anyhow. And then Old Covenant was the other main way that came to mind. These are just... Fasting is now gone. That was an Old Covenant ritual. And so fasting is done. I, my believer, my followers won't do things. Any, any of the Old Testament rituals will no longer are all done away with. And of course, the fact that he says there will come a day when you know the bridegroom is no longer with him that that really discounts that uh, interpretation of that text. Well, it seems like we've I've asked way too many questions about two sermons for our short meeting, so we may have to roll this over into another meeting if we want to talk about mine. Uh, anything to wrap up these next two or what's coming next in Matthew and and then we'll. Uh, pause and come back for another session and talk about my Hebrews message? Well, one, this next section in Matthew that brings these series of miracles to a close and introduces the mission that's about to be launched. Uh, so we're, 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 we're on the hinge, if you will, of uh, transitioning from an older section or a section that began at just before the Sermon on the Mount and then now we'll launch into the sending of the Twelve. Uh, we have these last two miracle stories, which are told. It, it's frankly utterly fascinating to me, but it again highlights the importance of obeying the words of Jesus. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'll finish it soon, but I've begun working on a blog post um, just to kind of overview this whole section and the significance of the placement of chapters 8 and 9 following the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, clearly intentional, clearly uh, intended to be taken as a piece. Uh, and and when taken that way, it puts uh, a significant emphasis on the importance of our obeying Christ as Lord and King. Compassionate and gracious is the Lord. This is our God. This is our God. Slow to anger 